Hey nerds, welcome to episode 417 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, just doing a quick intro all by myself today. Uh, super excited to tell you about today's episode, which is an interview with debut author Phil Stamper. Uh, his book, The Gravity of Us, came out just last week. And if you're on YA Twitter uh, at all, if you follow any young adult authors, you probably saw people celebrating this book that came out and his really fun uh, kind of book celebration the day of his the, the book that came out on, on Tuesday. Just a lot of fun. <laughs> I joke around in this episode that I, I kind of feel like Phil is the uh, like the mayor of YA Twitter. He he works in publishing. He seems to know everybody. Uh, everyone you know interacts with him on Twitter. He's just a really great guy and the book is so much fun. Uh, we get obviously all over it in the conversation but uh, if you're a fan, uh, I feel like everyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, uh, we have some sort of connection to space and uh, taking and going, you know, seeing people go to the moon and uh, always talk about Mars and all this various stuff. And then uh, this book combines that and the rise of social media and just, it's so fun. I think you're really, really going to like it. Um, I'm excited for you guys to hear this conversation. So if you want to get a hold of us, you can always visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. Uh, there you'll find links to our social, which is Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Uh, on the website, you'll also find our Professional Book Nerds 2020 Reading Challenge. I've seen a lot of you guys tagging us uh, on, on social media with that. So still plenty of time to kick that off if you want. Uh, if you do and you hop on social media and you want to tag us, we'll share all of the stuff that you're doing by using the hashtag PBNread2020. Um, if you want to leave us a quick review in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to us, uh, we always appreciate that. Uh, and then, of course, if you want to email us for other book recommendations, you can always do that by uh, emailing professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Okay, uh, that's just about it for me. I'm recording this on Monday morning. It's rainy and snowy and dreary here in Cleveland, so I hope wherever you're at, uh, it's a little bit nicer outside. And if it's not, I hope this conversation with Phil will uh, kind of warm your heart and, and cheer you up a little bit because it sure was a lot of fun for me to do. So, uh, okay, that's just about everything. I think, yeah, then just going to let you get to the conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy this lovely chat with the phenomenal debut author, Phil Stamper, on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Adam, and I can't tell you how excited I am today to be joined by Phil Stamper, who is a debut author of the outrageously great new YA novel, The Gravity of Us. It's all about space, love, social media, family, and so, so much more. He's received glowing reviews from countless publications, including a starred review from Booklist, which is amazing. Uh, for his day job, he works in publishing, which means he's just about as nerdy as we are here. So first off, Phil, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. This is really exciting. Uh, so we always love to start our interviews by having our authors kind of give an introduction to their book. So can you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about what The Gravity of Us is kind of all about? Yeah, of course. Um, so I usually like to describe The Gravity of Us as kind of simply a love story about two teen boys who fall in love after their lives are kind of uprooted for their parents' mission to Mars. Um, and to elaborate a little bit more on what that means, um, it focuses around a uh, 17-year-old Cal, who is a social media journalist, uh, very successful on at that. 
Uh, shortly into the book, his father is selected as an astronaut for a highly publicized NASA, NASA mission to Mars. Um, and that means that Cal is forced to relocate from Brooklyn to Houston, and the whole family is thrust into this media circus. Um, along the way, Cal meets uh, another astro kid, uh, Leon. Um, he is the son of another astronaut, and in this weird world where they're kind of always in the spotlight, um, and they're both kind of unsettled by it, um, they find mutual support in each other, and that kind of quickly grows into something more. Um, as you can tell from the cover, uh, no secrets there. <laughs> they kind of fall for each other fast. Um, but when secrets about the program are uncovered, Cal uh, has to find a way to reveal the truth through his journalism without also hurting the people who have become most important to him and, of course, protecting the, you know, the entire point of the mission itself. So there's a lot of, of things going on here that I, I want to unpack a little bit. The, the first thing, yeah. the... Uh, the the mission to Mars is kind of like the the backdrop of the love. It's it's hard to say like what is the main plot because a lot I feel like everything is equally as important in this book, which is hard to do. But has space been something that you you've always been interested in? I mean, because it's not just like oh, there's a mission to Mars and then they don't talk about it. Like you really go into depth about a lot of the, the things here. Is this been something that has always been kind of a passion for you? Yeah, absolutely. So. I mean, first, just to kind of touch on the um, the many different aspects of the book, I, I really did think it was important to focus not just on one or two things, um, you know, because it would have been very easy to go super far into the kind of the nerdy space aspect or the social media aspect or even the love story, and I um, wanted to really give it all, um, or even the, the, you know, there's mental health um conversations that happen. There's a lot of things that go on there. Mm-hmm. So I, I really wanted to make sure that each different uh, piece had its own, could stand on its own. And that means that it's pretty balanced throughout. Um, and specifically to the space piece, something I've, um, you know, I've always been obsessed with the Apollo missions and the space race and everything from that era. I mean, I have I have life magazines from the '60s, just kind of stacked up in a in a drawer somewhere. Um, that I'll have, you know, photos of the astronaut families in them, and you know, air accounts of kind of everything that happened then, and all the drama that happened behind the scenes. Um, I've read all the astronaut memoirs that are that are out there, which there are a bajillion of them. Um, and, you know, I've watched every documentary, all the new ones that came out for the 50th anniversary were really exciting to see, even though, you know, the book was already finished by then, but it was nice to kind of reflect on everything. Um, sorry, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 launch. Uh, but it was really nice to kind of reflect on that as well. And it's just always been a big part of my life, um, just because I've always been really interested in it. I think dating back to when I first saw Apollo 13, uh, the, the movie with Tom Hanks. And um, and so I, I guess with how I wanted to bring it into this, the story, um, I really did want it to be the backdrop. I, I, think, I thought what was most interesting when I was going through everything with the real you know, space race from the 60s was that um, all this was happening and all the focus was on the astronauts, but just as terrifying to me was that, you know, they, these families had to go about their day, smile for the cameras, put on a nice dress and, you know, be completely made up, all while not knowing if their husbands were coming home alive that night. Mm-hmm. And that was the kind of tension that I really wanted to bring in um, into this contemporary story that is, you know, a, 
basically a present day um, version of the 60s space race, just if we had a slightly better space program at this point. Um, so something else, and you mentioned kind of the, the social media aspect of this, and it sort of reminded me of um, Sarah Ennie has had a book that came out uh, last year called Tell Me Everything, where she mm-hmm. also sort of invented a uh, a social media platform. And I joked with her uh, when I interviewed her and, and we've become friends since about the fact that like, it legitimately could have been a social media platform. Like she should have found a venture capitalist or something. And I feel the same way for what you created here. Like what, how did you go into creating the social media platform that you did? And then, you know, why did you choose to do that as opposed to just saying like, you know, Periscope, which used to exist or or Twitter or anything like that. Right. Um, yeah, it's dangerous to create your own. Um, (laughs) and that was something I, I mean, you know, you read some and they're like, they're the corniest thing you've ever heard. And you're like, Oh God, like you're just remaking Facebook or you're remaking Instagram. And so I, I didn't know what I really wanted to do at first. So I just kind of had a placeholder because I was, when I was drafting this, I didn't know exactly how this was going to be used in the plot. I knew that he was an amateur journalist who was using it for, uh, like, a social media journalist as, like, a way to um, to get his stories out there and to get his, like, research and interviews and that kind of stuff out there. Uh, but I also wanted to fit it into a social media platform that made sense and would be used today and so it's really just a mashup of like instagram stories and tiktok and vine rest in peace and you know (laughs) all of those um all of those platforms that essentially do the same thing where it's you know but this one focuses a little bit more on the live aspect um so there's sorry there's a siren going on i live in new york so that's gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) um so basically, I just wanted to combine all the, the pieces I liked into its own um, platform, which is called Flash Fame. And um, you know, my thought is, you know, people will use Flash Fame, Flash Fame for, um, you know, for cat videos, for you know, any anything goofy you'd find on TikTok. Um, but then there's also a subsect of people who use it to kind of get the real news out there, and that's what um, that's what Cal does. Um, he's someone who cares deeply about journalism and real journalism in the um, in this world of kind of fake news and clickbait and um, really kind of despises that culture that's happened. And so this is his antidote to it, really. Uh, speaking of Cal, I think I've seen you talk about this just a little bit, but I've also, you know, seen writers say that, you know, kind of there's always a little bit of of you in your character. So how much of you is in Cal? Um, sorry, I was just waiting for the... Oh, that's okay. Uh, to go <laughs> um, it's really hard to, to answer this question because honestly, I'm not like Cal. Um, and I think that everyone kind of assumes that um, people write characters that are themselves. Um, but also there's just so much of me in Cal that it's hard for me to kind of hard for me to like piece, like what, what is me, what is not. And I mean, I think there's, you know, he's super ambitious, which is something that I've always been. And like, you know, even to a fault, like you'll see people questioning on, you know, Goodreads why he's so selfish at times. And I was just like, well, you know, that, that was, Oh, that was me as a teen. So mm-hmm. sorry, <laughs> I was very selfish. Um, but I mean, it was something I could kind of explore a little bit. Um, 
and you know there are friendships with you know Cal's friendship with Deb, which who is his um, you know best friend in Brooklyn, who he has to leave, and um, it's really hard having a long distance friendship with someone who you were so close with, but and you're suddenly li- living separate lives, and that was really fun for me to piece apart because you know I got to reflect on my high school friendships that were so, we were so close, but then once we left you know, went to different colleges or something like that, it got really hard to have that same chemistry, but we still cared about each other a lot. Um, so I think in those kind of pieces, that's where Cal and I are similar. Like the relationships, the um, how, how, for example, how Cal is trying to be a little bit more respectful of his mother's um, experience with anxiety um, and his boyfriend's experience with depression. That's kind of reflecting on how uh, my own experiences and things that I've learned um, with my own um, experiences with mental health, but also, you know, that of my people in my family. Um, and it's just something that I've, I never got to do as a teen, so I'm trying to process it in that way. Um, but I, honestly, he's so extroverted, and I am not. Um, <laughs> he is, he's a little bit more snarky and jaded than I am. Um, so and maybe I like turned up turned the dial up on a few things that um, that I I wish I could be. Um, mm-hmm. So I got to you know be a rule breaker and you know through Cal when I do not break rules as a <laughs> real human. Um, so you know it's a it's a little bit. Uh, I mean you can't write a character any character in my book is going to have something that you know resonates deeply with me. But um, for the most part, Cal is a Cal is the most different um, character I've written. We'll just put it that way. Yeah. Uh, you you touched on something with his best friend Deb, which I I really loved upon reflection of the book. Is you know the the story very much opens with them intertwining in each other's lives, and I I loved Deb. She is just an awesome awesome character. And then when Cal moves away, I'm not going to give too much away, but he moves, you know, away because of the the space program and everything, and you really don't get a lot of Deb throughout the rest of the story. And at first, I was bummed out about that, but then the more I thought about it, like that is what you just mentioned about friendships from high school and then even you know in college and beyond. Like we are very much a, a people of like proximity, and it can be so easy to just sort of let these things. Like it's a lot of work to remain friends with someone if you're not directly next to them all the time. And I love that you put that in there, especially for teenagers that are going to read this book, because I think it's important to understand that like you do have to work to maintain those friendships, and it, but it's okay to not see each other every single day. Yeah, I, I mean, and sometimes you're able to kind of find find what works for you, and that's, you know, uh, spoilers, that's what happens in this book. <laughs> um, you know, they, Deb has her own path she has her own storyline it's in the background you don't see a lot of it because it's not her story mm-hmm. and it's really hard to like it would have not been authentic to have Deb be a huge part of Cal's story once he moved away um, but I still think it's really important to like reflect on those friendships and say what do you know what did they bring to who I am as a person um, but then also like how how am I not being there for her now that I'm literally not there for her, like literally not downstairs, or you're, you're not one floor down where, you know, they were neighbors in, um, in Brooklyn. And so having that friendship of proximity um, and getting to really like piece that apart and figure out what 
what that means when you move away. It was something that, you know, it's something that I have had to think about for my friends in college, my friends in high school. And it's, you know, when you move to a new city ever, you're going to have that whole feeling of like, okay, well, which friends are going to really stick around? Which ones am I going to make the effort for? Um, when you have your own exciting things going on and it's, it's just hard sometimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, Deb was my, like probably my favorite character to write because I wanted her to be not just like the, the gay best friend relationship, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the kooky girlfriend, like the, that, that kind of relationship, which I do see in a lot of books, which is fine because it's in many cases that is authentic in some ways, but if you don't dive in a little farther, mm-hmm. but I like wanted her to be this really cool character and I wanted you to miss her when she's not on the page. And I feel like I've done that. And I think some of the like most charming moments of the entire book are in that friendship um, early yeah. on and in their phone calls and at the end. Um, and there's just a nice story that's, you know, it's not the main focus, but it is still, it still makes you smile every time that, you know, she jumps into a phone call, even if they're fighting, even if they're not happy with each other. Um, there's still that kind of pool between them two that, that really um, is something special to write, I think. Uh, if you'll excuse the, the terrible space pun when it comes to missing her when she's not in there, uh, mission accomplished. That yeah. was, <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah. I could feel it being yeah. bad. <laughs> no, that's fine. The, I, I welcome every pun <laughs> um, when it has to do with space. Um, and, yeah, I, it's it's such a hard line as well because like you don't want people to be you don't want to write something where you like know people are going to be annoyed at what you've written, and that's something that I really had to. I mean, you know, and some people are going to want an entire story about that, and I mean that's what fan fiction's for. So like, go <laughs> do that. But um, but yeah, I really I like I really wanted that feeling of like you you should miss her. Cal misses her. Like it's it's part of the story it's part of his story mm-hmm. his, his entire experience is kind of focused on that for a while um you know i mentioned in the introduction that you work in publishing and that's a very unique place to be when it comes to an author i actually think the only person we've had on the the show ever who also works in publishing is um david levithan who's the only one who's oh, yeah. doing that kind of the same thing that i'm aware of it that came on the show but i'm curious for you as a as a person who was writing this story, like, were there aspects of the publishing kind of process you were thinking about in order to try to get it, uh, you know, out in the world? Like, whether it's certain beats you know have to be in a story, or I guess I'm just like, does your experience in publishing do you think that facilitated uh, your storytelling? Um, I, I mean, no, not really. So kind of how this process works was I, I worked in nonprofit PR for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, during that time is when I started writing. Um, and I was, I mean, that's when I learned everything I needed to know about writing, at least at craft and beats and everything like that. And I've gotten to kind of expand upon that in the last years while I've been in publishing. But um, I'm not, I mean, I'm not an editor. I work in a corporate position. Um, and I do work with authors all the time, but mm-hmm. I don't work with text or anything. And I also don't, um, I don't work in any sort of uh, role that deals directly with the book. So mm-hmm. as far as a craft um, perspective, I I learned all of that, or I at least started learning about that before I joined the world of publishing. Um, I did learn a little bit more when I was in grad school for publishing with creative writing. Um, and so that was interesting. But it was, um, I would say, 
altogether my craft itself has not changed much. And I and I, the thing is, you it's so unpredictable that you can't you can't really try to guess what people want. Mm. And that's something I really did with this book. Was like this is. Did this just me in a book? Like it's the space race, finding a way to make it a queer romance, uh, contemporary queer romance, uh, building that into a space race, um, social media, like all these different aspects are just like things I love, and and it's really hard to um, write thinking like, okay, this is what an editor wants. Like obviously there are things that you know it has to make sense as a story. There are beats you have to hit. Um, I love plotting with beat sheets, but that's just because I'm super organized in that way, I guess. <laughs> Um, but, but really that didn't affect it. What it, what I, I learned the most, I think through, um, through marketing and publicity and just a general knowledge of how the industry works. And, um, I'm actually the, one of the admins for the debut 2020 group for uh, middle grade and YA debuts. Uh, we're called the roaring twenties. <laughs> we have about 200 and some members and, um, uh, it's a Facebook group where it's really just, we all kind of get together and say, like, what are we freaking out about? How can we deal with that? <laughs> um, and it's, it's actually been great because I, so I, I feel like I end up knowing more than most because I have, you know, I, I've worked in the industry now for four and a half years. Um, I have a master's degree in publishing. I've also been writing for eight years. So if you put all that together, um, I feel like I'm, I've been listening enough that I, I know what, I'm talking about in some ways. So mm-hmm. I've been able to help a lot of authors that way. And then through helping, or if it's a question I don't know, I can always go to, you know, my friends in the industry and say like, Hey, you know, what's the difference between a marketer and a publicist or something like that, which mm-hmm. is, you think, you know, but then when you get a book deal and you're like trying to figure out, do I reach out to my marketer about this or my publicist? You realize you don't know anything. Um, so <laughs> it's actually been helpful for me. And I think for everyone um, to have that insight into it. Um, but in the end, I, I, I mean, it didn't, it definitely didn't give me any leg up or anything. I got plenty of rejections, um, and it was, uh, still quite a process, but it's, um, been very helpful from the marketing perspective. Speaking of the marketing perspective, I, I will say like the, I feel like the way that I first discovered you was through Twitter and seeing, I just felt like being a big fan of YA myself, like I felt like every time I would see somebody post something, like, you'd be tagged in one way or the other. Like, I've come to think of you as almost like the mayor of, of YA Twitter. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, but, like, I'm curious your thoughts, because to me, I've seen a lot of people talk about how kind of toxic young adult Twitter can be, but I've only seen, like, personally, I've only had positive experiences of, like, kind of like what you said. I, I have a lot of friends now that are in this world. So, like, to you, what do you see as like the benefits of that community? Yeah, I mean, none of the success I've had would have been possible without Twitter, I don't think. Um, And the thing is like Twitter doesn't do a good job of like selling direct books. I know there's a whole controversy of, you know, one person said that it's not good for direct sales and everyone decided to quote tweet saying how (laughs) they were wrong. Mm -hmm. Except for if you look at the numbers or any, any data out there, it will tell you nobody except for a small community of authors basically buys books through Twitter. Yeah. But it's so good at raising awareness and getting you on lists and getting you tagged in those posts where it's like, you know, you, you get in kind of ingrained in the community there. And um, it, it's really helpful for brand awareness and like awareness of who you are and what you're 
what you're excited about, what you talk about. Um, and it does connect you with a lot of influential people on there. You know, book bloggers are all on Twitter, and not all, but most of the book bloggers have some presence on Twitter, um, authors, publishers. Um, and, I mean, really, <laughs> with Twitter, the the biggest thing that happened to me on there that helped put me on this path was um, when I... Uh, to, to borrow other people's quotes, when I exposed Lonnie Serum for the Handbook for Mortals uh, situation, mm-hmm. we'll say, um, where it got on the bestsellers list, uh, number one on the bestsellers list, but it was a scam, basically, and then we got um, through some research. Mm-hmm. And um, through Twitter, um, we were able to get the New York Times to take it down mm-hmm. and also to kind of change how they um, how they process, well, um, how they process um, bulk sales mm-hmm. on on their list, and so that was something that kind of put me out there in a way that um, that nothing else had before. I've always had an online presence, but you know that's one of the moments that you can't really predict. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to kind of monopolize on that by still just being my authentic self because you know you get. 3,000 followers from that, but then half them will eventually leave you anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just how Twitter works. So <laughs> it's just, I just decided to continue being myself and like not, you know, using, using that as like a jumping off point if people knew me from there. But um, otherwise, to just really try and find a, um, an author brand that is as consistent with my own self as possible. Um, so, what was your original question? Oh, so, I did, no, you kind of answered it, just kind of like your thoughts on, on you know, the sort of YA Twitter community. On the which, community? Yeah, which I think you yeah. kind of wrote. I mean, the thing, the thing is, like, people have spoken about this in, like, in smarter ways than I will, but um, it, obviously there are times when Twitter can be, can be negative, and we usually just have to piece apart like is this negativity something that is worth responding to or is it something that's worth boosting and is actually like making a positive statement in the long run um a lot of the people who think that that twitter is toxic are they're usually pointing to people who just want good representation in books and so we really have to be cautious when we throw around the word toxic around those people but obviously the outside of the YA world, um, when people write about it, they're going to say whatever they want anyway. Um, and they love reporting on how toxic YA Twitter is. But, I mean, there, like you said, there's so much joy, there's so much support in Twitter that, you know, really what you have to do kind of as an author, as a reader, as anyone who's participating on Twitter is, like, know when to just step back and um, know when you need to join in um, because you don't need to always be a part of every conversation. You don't need to do that if it's not your place. Um, and I think where we usually go wrong is when, you know, quote unquote pile ups, um, when it's people who are not adding to the conversation, but kind of just want to redirect attention to themselves. And then that kind of distracts mm-hmm. from the main point, which is again, usually like this is bad representation and this is something that needs to be looked at more closely. Um, so, I mean, I think I've, I've always had good experiences with it and I've been able to kind of detach a little bit and, 
and analyze things before I get too heated. But it is hard to do when you are on Twitter all the time. And it's it's as authors, it's it's our jobs to be on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I think. And um, we need to know like that we are setting a good example for teens, and that we are speaking out about um, issues, and you know, making sure that we're you know we're doing the best we can. Um, and I think we're getting closer to that point. Um, and they've and I don't I don't know what's changed recently, but I think um, I think recently we've had a we've had a good run on Twitter. Um. You mentioned sort of the, the joy on there. This isn't a question, but I just have to tell you, uh, your and Ryan LaSala's, like, friendship on Twitter is kind of, I think it's my favorite thing on all of the internet. Every time I see one of you tweet at the other one, I'm just like, I feel like I'm a fly on the wall, like, oh, man, this is my, it's my favorite thing. This, I love it so much. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I, I, I love Ryan so much. He's, he is one of the coolest people I know. Um, I'm, I'm, on Twitter, we, how to keep up our fights. Uh-huh. Um, so I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, on there, but um, secretly, yes, he is. Um, he's very cool, and I, I really loved getting to know him and a lot of the other queer authors as well um, through Twitter. And that's also something that, like, you can't, you can't get anywhere else. Like, you can go to events and meet people and make connections, but you know, we became friends on Twitter. Like, that's just how it works. And you know, now we're close, and I can text him at any moment, um, complaining about something or you know, trashing him online or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, that all started from just trying to make genuine connections on Twitter. And there are so many friends that I have out there like that, um, which is kind of amazing. Well, I'm uh, I'm interviewing him at the American Library Association conference later this month. And I promise you, I, I won't say that you said anything nice about him. I'll, I'll make sure to keep up appearances for you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <for> that. <laughs> um, one last thing I want to ask you about Cal before I get a few more questions. But, um, you mentioned there's a little bit of you in, in all of your characters, and like you mentioned a lot of the things you're passionate about that he is. So I have to ask, something that he's crazy passionate about is cassettes. Is that something you're actually like really into? No, that's so silly. <laughs> Why would anyone do that? Okay. Um, so so just to more, more context, Cal has a cassette collection, mm-hmm. and um, he is big into cassette culture, which is this like, weird counter record culture that is out there and exists. And um, we were in Toronto with a few friends, like while I was drafting this, actually maybe before I was drafting the book, but close. Um, and I wanna, we went to this record store just because it was cool, like record, I think record, book, video game store, whatever, it was a lot of things. Um, and there was, a, there was a little section for cassettes and one of our friends um, went over there and was like, he was really big into cassettes and he like just went on and on about how the sound is like smoother and cooler and I was just like this is such a weird thing like I need to put this in a book um and you know it it is weird for a team to be into something like that but it is not surprising honestly because teens are into weird stuff and also there's so much um kind of ironic nostalgia in the book anyway Mm -hmm. Um, that was kind of fun to have him be basically living in this like Reimagination of the '60s, obsessed with '80s cassettes, um, while making a mockery of all of it uh, uh, in his very, like, very present day social media platform. Yeah. Um, so it's just fun. It's not at all me, um, but I thought it was a really fun quirk. And you know, there's, I mean, there is a reason behind it, and you know, you learn more about why he's into it, and you mm. know, it's partially because of the you know family members' obsession with it who passed away, and so. Um, 
you know, he started his collection by getting it from like as his only inheritance from um, from a family member who passed away. So there is a more touching reasoning behind it than yeah. just like I think it's cool, but he is into it. Yeah, I am not. <laughs> okay, I had to I had to clarify that part just to be sure. Um, People think that a lot because it's like that's such a weird, that's such a unique, specific thing. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm like, no, I mean, I had cassettes when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, but you know, everyone did because we were in the early nineties. Right. Oh man. Okay. I was just okay. Then that 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 helps <laughs> clarify. So, um, at the end of our conversations with authors, we like to ask uh, nine lighthearted questions that we call the Nerd Nine because I'm a fan of alliteration. Um, okay. So the first one is: Do you remember the last book you finished reading? The last book I finished reading, yes. Um, so sorry, I was just on vacation and I read four <laughs> books in a row. Uh-huh. So I'm trying to think what the last one was. I think, oh my god, this is so embarrassing. Um, this is supposed to be like a quick speed round, and I'm um, okay. Sorry, the last one I read was uh, the Lucky Ones. Liz Lawson, sorry. Mm-hmm. That's wow. okay. Uh, this is the 2020 debut, comes out um, in a few months, and it is wonderful. Nice. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Um, no. I, I I end up reading a lot on the subway, mm-hmm. because I have a 40-minute commute, and um, what else am I going to do? Um, <laughs> I, I listen to audiobooks, especially on that, because sometimes I just don't have the attention span to hold a book and read it, um, so it's been great to kind of disassociate on the train and listen to audiobooks through overdrive hey look at that nice plug thanks i didn't even ask for that appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) um do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid oh um so i loved animorphs i loved Mm -hmm. um that whole series the, the dear america series um all of those were like my scholastic book fair oh yeah all the time um, and then I, I would say the one, I mean, obviously Harry Potter was an obsession, um, and that carried on through like Twilight Hungry and everything that we needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say the biggest one would be, um, Agatha Christie's entire collection. Um, when I was in high school, I, my high school did not have a great selection of books, but it did have like 40 or so Agatha Christie novels, most of them from the Hercule Poirot, uh, collection. Mm-hmm. So I read all of them in the in like a year and a half that I was in school there um, and I could not get enough of them I still love them to this day um, they all kind of blur together at this point because they are kind of similar yeah. but there's just nothing more cozy than like an Agatha Christie novel and I was there at like 15, 16 years old like devouring them <laughs> I was just going to say because I'm also an Agatha Christie fan I was going to ask you if you have a favorite but like it's kind of unfair because they are they uh, all do really sort of like blend together <laughs> Yeah, it's usually like the last one I've read is my favorite. Um, I, I always liked, um, and then there were none. That was always my favorite. And one of my friends from high school, her favorite was Murder on the Orient Express. Um, and so we would always debate which one was better from those. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I also really like Death on the Nile. That mm-hmm. one, um, Adam Sass, who's another debut author, um, his book's coming up uh, late summer, early fall. Um, he sent me a cop- his copy of... Um, Death on the Nile, so I could read it again because it had been a while since I read it. Um, Um, Speaking of the Nile, I actually kind of travel. The next one of these is uh, What's one place you'd like to travel to that you have not yet been? Ooh. um, 
you know, I, I've done a lot of international travel, but what, one thing I haven't done in the States is um, Alaska, and I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to do somewhere north, but nobody ever wants to go on vacation um, <laughs> in cold places. So I would say Alaska or um, Norway, somewhere we could see the um, the the northern lights. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Thanksgiving. It's the no, none of the stress of Christmas with all of the good food, and <laughs> also I, we usually get to like stay in Brooklyn for it, and um, New York City just. Other than the strip where the parade is, everyone just leaves New York City, and it's so <laughs> quiet and peaceful, and it's just like a ghost town here, and I love it. Yeah. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Cats or dogs? Dogs. I mean, I like them all, but mm. I have a dog, and he's cute, and <laughs> all dogs are cute. Some cats are not, so that's why. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite food? <sighs> I... I uh, I, I can't choose one. I, that, that is something I've always been bad at choosing. I, I, I like a lot of food. That's totally fair. Okay, so last one of these. If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you pick? Ooh, uh, Dolly Parton. Oh, that's, ooh, that was really good. That was really fast, too. I usually People usually struggle with that one. That was really good. Yeah. I mean, I usually say, like, the, for the dinner party one, I'm like, like Dolly Parton, um, Dan Levy would be cool to talk to. Like, there are just there are a lot of people who are always on my list, but Do- Dolly Parton's never left the list. Yeah. So she, I mean, she's just one of the coolest people in the world. So oh, absolutely. I would love to chat with her for a bit. Yeah. Uh, okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from The Gravity of Us? Um, so I, I wrote this back for NaNoWriMo in 2016, and um, so that was November 2016, and you know, some things in America happened in November <laughs> 2016. Uh-huh. Um, so, I mean, I, I felt like what I was hearing from the queer teens on social media was that, generally speaking, like, everyone just felt helpless. I mean, this was obviously adults as well, but especially queer teens. Um, and I just wanted to show, you know, that in some way their voice matters and that, you know, you can make a change, you can speak up, people will listen, um, and that, you know, you also don't have to have everything right, you don't have to fix everything, it's okay to have that kind of dissonance in your life, um, and so that, I mean, those are kind of the two main things, it's just like, it's going to be okay, just, we're going to have to fight through it, but people will listen when you speak. That is... Perfect. Phil, the book is so, so good. I can't wait for everyone to read thank it. Thank you. Absolutely. Congratulations, and thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. 
So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.